welcome to Include NYC's podcast series. I'm Jean Mizutani, joined by Dr. Rebecca Court. Becky is a former Associate Commissioner of the Office of Special Education within the New York State Education Office and also served as Deputy Commissioner to the Office of Vocational and Educational Services for Individuals with Disabilities, which was then known as VESID. Her impact on the system was significant as she led the initiative to integrate the state's Office of Special Education into the Office of P-12 Education, merging all adult services, including vocational rehab, into the Office of Adult Career and Continuing Education Services, now known as ACCESS. Now we know where that acronym comes from. Becky remains active regarding special education policy and procedures and is currently a consultant for the New York City Department of Education and teaches in the leadership program at Bank Street College of Education. Today's topic is Education Options for Children with Disabilities, known as the Continuum of Special Education Programs and Services. So, why are we here today? Knowledge of the continuum is foundational to your understanding of education options for students with disabilities. And we're very fortunate to have the ideal conversation partner to help us understand it all. Welcome, Becky. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. And I'm so happy you are here. Tell us what the continuum is and about its requirement under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So the continuum of special ed services reflects a range of placement and program and service options under the federal law. And that federal law requires that every state have a continuum of alternative placements available to meet the needs of students with disabilities in the areas of special education and related service. In New York City, that continuum includes services provided in public schools, private schools, approved day schools, residential schools, and even home and hospital instruction. In New York State, related services only can be provided as part of the special ed continuum, unlike many other states where related services would be provided only in conjunction with other special education programs. So New York State goes beyond the federal law in many respects, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Great. So we can't really talk about the continuum without understanding least restrictive environment, known as LRE. Can you explain that briefly? The concept of least restrictive environment is defined, again, in the federal law. And it, what it says is that students have to be placed in programs that give them the maximum appropriate access to their non-disabled peers throughout the school day. It also talks about placement in a school as close as possible to their home, and preferably you'd want students with disabilities to attend the school they would have attended if they didn't have a disability. In New York City, of course, students often have many choices of where to apply to attend school if they don't have a disability. So these same options should be available to students with disabilities. Understood. Please describe the continuum from general education to highly intensive or restrictive programs. So in New York City and across the state, many, if not most, really most students mm -hmm. spend either all or the majority of their day in a general education classroom, which would be 
the least restrictive placement you could be uh, placed in if you're spending the day in the general ed classroom. Mm -hmm. You can have services pushed into that program and that could include consultant teacher or resource room. In New York City those programs are combined into something called SETS. Um, or you could have related services delivered within the general ed classroom. You can also have students who don't spend the whole day in the general ed classroom. So they may be pulled out of the classroom for sets or resource room, or they may be pulled out of the general ed classroom for related services, or they may spend part or all of their day in a special class, which would mean that's a classroom that only serves students with disabilities. They're also on the continuum home and hospital instruction for students and course this is should be for students who in general for medical and physical reasons are unable to attend school in a general school building or even in a special school building. Now the state gets more specific when it defines some of these settings including what are the acceptable staffing ratios within a special class sometimes maximum caseloads for providers, or minimum and maximum levels of service for some services. The federal law really just talks about these things more generally. So really there is a program for every student that really sounds ex extremely extensive. Yes, and the program needs to be individualized by the IEP team, the Committee on Special Education or the Committee on Preschool Special Education, needs to look at every student's unique needs and of course as they develop the goals for that student for the year, the annual goals, they then need to match the service delivery, the program, in a way in the least restrictive environment that will allow the student to meet those goals. Yes, so a moment ago you mentioned home instruction. I'm assuming that would be a temporary plan. It should virtually always be a temporary plan. You may have an exception for a child obviously who has such severe physical disabilities that they're not able to leave their home at all, but that is an extremely rare circumstance. In general, that should be a very temporary plan based on medical reasons. Occasionally, it may be based on a severe behavioral issue where you're waiting for an appropriate program to be found, but we should not be depending on home instruction. Right, absolutely not. Is New York City's continuum unique in any way? Well, how it defines some of its uh, specialized program, it does. One thing about New York City, especially in relationship to preschool, is its dependence on approved private providers. And some of this is historical, that prior to what was then the Education of the Handicapped Act, the EHA, which preceded the IDEA, New York State was ahead of most states in the country and had a very extensive range of private provider services and when the law changed and New York City tried to kind of fit a round program into a square hole, um, it left some vestiges of services that continue to have somewhat over-reliance on some of these private providers rather than having more students move into public settings. One big advantage now of course of universal pre-K and especially uh, 3K is that we are about to start having many more programs for general education preschool students into which students with disabilities, preschool age students with disabilities, can be integrated. And that has been a problem in the past as you try to design programs for students with disabilities when you don't have 
a low-cost or low-cost option for non-disabled students. So are we talking about natural attrition away from private programs? It sounds as though we are. Well, to some extent, I think either uh, uh, they will work in greater collaboration with public programs. There are many uh, integrated models now that we're seeing where the private provider comes in to the Head Start or to another publicly funded program and provides the specialized services. But over time, we hopefully would see an increase in the publicly provided programs. So that is for preschoolers. So as the children get older, there's also a non-public school system, and that's also a vestige of the past, correct? To some extent, the uh, size of it and the number of students served, yes. If you look across the state, the variation of the number of students in segregated, totally segregated programs, including private programs, in some cases upstate you have BOCES programs, which are more similar to District 75, um, you see a tremendous variation in the percentages of students who are served in those programs. And there shouldn't be a huge variation. The kids, the children are not that different. It's the program and the history and the culture that may be different. So over time, yes, as the, as the capacity of the public programs grows to serve more and more severely disabled students, and we see that especially with children on the autism spectrum, the tremendous growth in the city's ability uh, and expertise in serving these students, there should be less need to place students in more segregated environments. I understand. Um, many parents of children with disabilities believe that they're getting their child into a private funded school is almost like a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Are they right? Well, it totally depends on the student. Um, the advantage of certain private, well-established programs would be the level of expertise and what they were able to provide a student. So if you have a student who is so severely disabled that they cannot be effectively served in a less restrictive placement, an approved private school program can be the most appropriate setting and for them it is the least restrictive environment because it has to be appropriate. And placing a student in what is a less restrictive placement in a general ed setting that's not appropriate for them isn't the least <laughs> yeah. restrictive environment. Right. Um, but Private schools are the most segregated environments, and they don't give students access to their non-disabled peers, and often they don't have the range of curriculum and program options that you might find in a public setting, and certainly in a public school district. There are many students in New York, because of certain legal cases, who are in non-approved private schools that are being publicly funded. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues with those programs is that their teachers are often not required to meet certification requirements. And what many people don't understand is that they're not required to implement the recommendations on a student's IEP. So you have, again, a variety of programs. And students um, and parents need to realize that once they graduate from these programs, there isn't an environment like this after age 21. There's no entitlement to service. So we have to be preparing students to be in more integrated environments. And that kind of small enclosed environment doesn't provide that opportunity. Right. Because it's a general-led world. And that's the reality. So you mentioned a moment ago that the non-approved private schools didn't have to implement an IEP. What about the approved non-public schools? They do. The approved 
state-approved non-public schools that essentially the IEP team, the Committee on Special Education, has made the decision that that is the, the least restrictive environment for that student. They write the IEP. If the school can't meet the IEP, they can't accept the student into their program. So they have to only accept students whose IEPs they can meet fully. And every year there's an annual review where the Committee on Special Education has to be looking and saying, is this child making the expected progress? Do we see the services that we've recommended being delivered? Now, it sounds wonderful to say, yes, they have to implement the IEP, but we have spoken with parents before that have faced a problem where their child now requires an additional session of speech and the non-public school can only provide speech twice a week. What about a circumstance like that? They shouldn't have the student in their school. Wow. Straconian, isn't it? No, not at all. They shouldn't be accepting students. Remember, we don't want to provide services based on cost, but you can't completely ignore sure. cost. Tuition rates are set at private schools based on the needs of the students they say they're going to serve. So there isn't any reason why most private schools would say, I can only provide two periods a week of speech. It's their job to hire sufficient staff to meet the requirements of the IEPs of the students that they have accepted. If their budget is not big enough, they need to go back to the state and have their budget adjusted, saying, I'm now serving students with more right. severe requirements or more intensive requirements. I do think we have to be careful about this idea that more is always better including more related services is always better. We're, we're seeing cases of a huge amount of time being spent providing students with related services that in effect withdraw them from access to the general education curriculum. So in some cases you have students pulled out of their classroom 20% of the week. That's as if they're absent from the general ed right. curriculum one entire day a week. Now, if right. you told parents, we're not going to instruct your child 20% of the week, they'll be missing every fifth day or every fifth page or whatever, of course they'd be saying that doesn't make that's sense. So we have to be looking at ways to look not at a goal for a related service provider. There aren't goals on IEPs for related service provider, even though you often see the name. The goal is for the child, and then we have to say, what's the least restrictive, least intensive way that goal can be met? So teachers should be consulting with related service providers. If you look at vocabulary goals, for example, what kindergarten teacher or first grade teacher or second grade teacher shouldn't be teaching children vocabulary or increasing their vocabulary? So what you have to ask yourself because goals are supposed to drive the service, is, is this, does this goal require someone with a specialized skill that the general ed or special ed teacher, and usually it's a special ed teacher who would be working with the child right. as well, can't work on? And if you look at it that way, you're often going to say, why can't this happen in the classroom? Why shouldn't it? You know, I see goals for kids on language and they're pulled out individually with an adult, and they're having almost no opportunity for interaction with the people who are going to teach them the most language, and that's their peers. You learn more language from your peers 
than you learn from the teacher because you don't spend all that much time individually talking to the teacher. Right. Now, I understand all that, but is it practical to think that even the best trained teacher would be conversant enough with low muscle tone, you know, whatever it is, OT issues, PT issues, speech issues, counseling depends issues? On the, it absolutely depends on the severity. Of that. That's why I say to the question, you have to look at the goal. Mm -hmm. What is it? When you see a goal about cutting with scissors, and every kindergarten kid is learning to cut with scissors, you'd want to see in the medical information something that said, if this person doesn't have specialized training, so of course there are kids who need PT, of course there are kids who need OT. When you look at the speech providers for kids who stutter, or kids who have muscular problems, or right. kids who need feeding, mm -hmm. of course these kids, these students need a related service provider with expertise and skill. But you're talking about 60-70% of kids with disabilities recommended for speech and counseling. When I see goals around kids' behavior that are then recommended for OT around certain focusing or certain interactions in the classroom, and the goal has to do with them being able to stay in their seat when things are going on around them, and they're getting that service apparently being met in a pull-out one-on-one, and I'm thinking to myself, is the teacher, OT or PT or whoever, saying to the student, pretend you have five kids around you? They should be pushing into the classroom in cases right. like that. So, you know, there are a lot of issues around how we can better meet students' goals versus are we finding the right people to do it in an environment that gives maximum access to peers and to curriculum. That would certainly be a best practices scenario. It definitely would. Now, we talked to her a little bit about the non-public schools. What about charter schools? How do they stack up? Well, I think it's, again, there's a tremendous amount of variation in the quality of charter schools. Uh, similar to some private schools, they don't always have to have certified teachers. They don't often have the range of expertise that a public school setting would have. They're often smaller. Uh, unfortunately, the, when you look at the, the capacity issues in many charter schools, it's a lottery that drives who gets in. So if you have only one or two students with particularly severe issues, the truth is it's hard to meet those students' needs in a way that allows you, again, with the budget that charter schools receive, how do you bring in the kind of expertise? Now, you can ask the school district to do it, but that's difficult, too, because then you're talking about people who aren't familiar with the school. So, unfortunately, we see charter schools sometimes counseling children out or not being as receptive or making students feel as if they're not adequate for the program, and many students leave. So, I don't think it, it's... It, it can be problematic to compare as if it's exactly the same, a charter school and a public school in the same region, for example, even if they have similar populations in terms of ethnicity or poverty or other things, because it, it often isn't the same thing in terms of especially students with disabilities and the severity of their needs. Right, and that's very confusing to parents because everybody says charter schools are public schools and they're assuming that and they're making assumptions based on what they know about the public model and it's very surprising in some cases. They are public schools, yes. but they don't, <laughs> they aren't operated in the same way, they don't have all the same requirements 
and they don't have all the same resources. Right. We've talked about this a little bit in our office. It's interesting because charter school students naturally have IEPs and children that go to local religious schools or what have you have the IESP service plan. Mm -hmm. And the question is always, what's the difference? Because neither school really has to provide free appropriate public education in the traditional sense. I think the only difference really is that charter schools are seen as part of the public system. And if for some reason the school can't meet that student's needs, then they can avail themselves of the public system. That would be the same for the student going to the religious school, but somehow it's well, different. Well, it isn't, it isn't actually the same. In IESP, there are somewhat different requirements in the continuum that has to be available to students who attend religious schools that are parentally placed. Charter schools do have an obligation to meet the student's IEP. They do have to that student is entitled to a free appropriate public education, but the charter school is allowed to ask the school district to provide the services. And there also are flexibilities in terms of the continuum service. Actually, when this Committee on Special Education is making a recommendation for a student who attends a charter school, they can go a little bit outside the continuum and look at specialized programs in that particular environment and say, all right, we're going to do something a little bit differently if it does meet the student's needs. But charter schools are required to meet the needs of students with disabilities either themselves or through these other mechanisms. They can contract, they can ask the school district, or they can do it with their own staff. Right. Now, let me ask you this, because as a practical matter, let's say that a, a family um, enters a charter school, the student has an IEP for a special ed class, such as a 12 to 1 to 1 parent meets with the charter school people and they say very honestly we can't provide that program but we can provide other services would you like to keep him here we'll do this or that the parent says yes now what i've observed is that the iep often stays the same so there's an understanding between parent and school it's not as though the parent doesn't know she does know there's a clear understanding about what the school will provide but the iep is not necessarily changed and i've heard that explained um, by saying it's for portability. I think in some cases the charter school is anticipating <laughs> that the family might change their minds four months later and if they do the IEP doesn't have to be changed again because it wasn't amended in the first place. Is, no, that's inappropriate. That's inappropriate. Yes, so that's it, 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 If the child is in your school mm -hmm. you have to be implementing the IEP that's written. If if the parent and the school, and as I said, there is some flexibility, if they believe that in this environment, which is different than maybe right. a huge public school, if they believe in this environment, they can meet the student's needs, they need to go back to the CSE and make those changes. We have now, thank goodness, computerized records in the system that allow people to see what, what was it before, what is it after, sure. and if the child can't be served effectively in that program, then the choices are to say to the charter school, you have to meet these child's needs. It, it isn't as if charter schools are precluded from offering special classes. Sure. There are some charter schools yeah. who offer special classes. But the truth of the matter is if it's the only child in the school, it, it's, it, 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 it's really not a realistic expectation. So right. you have to have some flexibility. So is there a problem, though, if the family and the school decide to do that for the purposes of ease of portability to just keep the IEP with an understanding that different supports are going to be provided? Is there a legal provided? problem? Absolutely. 
It's not legal. I think, I think it's common. Okay, it's illegal, but I think it's common. That's good to know. Unfortunately, there may be many. <laughs> many, I think. It's you know, uh, it, it's it's hard. The, the requirements of special education uh, are gigantic and diverse. So I don't think anyone expects everybody to be in full compliance every day. Right. But you certainly want to try to because you need to be able to acknowledge to a parent, um, remember, they have due process rights. Sure. So th the charter school is actually, it's not in their interest to do it. Mm -hmm. This parent could go to an impartial mm -hmm. hearing and say, this says special class. Right. You've been doing this all along. Right. And the charter school can say, well, you knew. Right, and, you agree. And you can but. say, <laughs> but the CSE didn't agree. And, and I don't write, the parent can say, I'm not the one who has the authority to write the IEP. Parent has to participate right. in, the, in the development. But we all know school districts don't always agree with parents. Mm -hmm. And it's the CSEs and the school district's responsibility to write the IP and to make sure it is implemented. That's really interesting. It really is. Um, New York City reformed special education several years ago. What happened and how successful was it? So it's a, this is an ongoing process, <laughs> uh, obviously. I think the chancellor and the deputy chancellor made a real commitment to greater integration of students with disabilities greater access to the general ed curriculum, and, it, and definitely greater access to the programs in their own communities. So you see much more focus on decision making at the local level based on where the family lives. You see much more responsibility of principals to take ownership of special education programs and of the special ed decision making by the teams. And you see more accountability with looking at the performance of students with disabilities and saying you as a principal have to address your teachers needs if they're not meeting students needs you have to look at what professional development is necessary you have to look at how you program within your building to meet the needs of students so we've seen a lot of changes especially a much greater focus on team teaching and on having students spend more time in the general education classroom because Honestly, and they recognize this, the performance of students who spend all their time in special classes uh, doesn't have a good trajectory towards high school diplomas. Right. Are there reasons that a state would need to change a continuum? Really, only if the federal law changed and suddenly put in some new requirement. It sounds unlikely. If you want to make a change, and for example, a while ago, New York City added this team teaching component. Uh, so that was the direction we wanted to go in, right. and it was allowable under the federal requirements. But you're trying not to disrupt the system too much. It's Once you change the continuum, right. then you're talking about everybody's IEPs and looking at whole new staff development. Uh, we've had a lot of changes, especially with Common Core curriculum, that require a lot of staff development and intervention. Mm. So I think... Um, Certainly, the focus on something like response to intervention while a student's in general ed isn't the special ed continuum, right. but it really was kind of spearheaded by the special ed office and is looking at how do we meet students' needs in general education before they develop the characteristics of a student with disability. Because right. every child who's been classified, especially in the area of learning disability, 
if they had gotten really good research-based instruction earlier, right. might never have shown no, that right. that lack of skill, that lack of experience. So um, I don't think we're looking to see that I'm aware of any major changes in the curriculum anytime no. soon, in the continuum anytime soon. Now you mentioned RTI, and I'm not going to reveal a source here, but I hear that Tier 3 does not exist in New York City. Well, in many places, Tier 3 is actually special education. Mm -hmm. So you, you, Tier 1, for people to understand response intervention, is a broad-based general education program of research-based instruction. And we saw it, it's starting more developed in math, but really started in reading. So you really want everybody to be getting a good research-based, literacy-based program when they start school. Tier two is when the student isn't making the kind of progress that you would expect. Right. And some children learn to read with little extra intervention and others take a lot more. And it's more likely you're gonna learn if you have good research-based instruction. And tier two says, okay, now I start really individualizing. I pull the child out, I work in a smaller group, I, I focus on the areas that they're having difficulty with, whatever that particular area in literacy it is. is it, phonemes, is it phonetics, is it vocabulary, is it fluency, what is it? In some places you'll see a tier three which is it's down to almost individualized programming. But you can also say sets could be part of what we would see as a, res a response to intervention mm -hmm. continuum up to tier three or a special class or a consultant teacher or pull it, push in sets. So there are a lot of ways that um, students might receive what you could characterize as tier three. And as I said, in some places, special education is what happens after tier two is unsuccessful. I've got it. Um, teachers have had to go through a lot of readjustment over the years. The expectations are totally different. How have their attitudes changed over time? I think the biggest change is in teacher training institutes, where candidates now entering a uh, teacher training institute for a general, especially for general education, for a general education diploma certification, at one time might have come in saying, I'm going to work with general education students. I'm not going to, I'm not in this to work with kids with disabilities. That's not what I'm going for. I think there's a very broad and specific understanding now that if you're entering a teacher certification program, be it general ed or special ed, you are going to be working with students with disabilities and you're going to have responsibility for students with disabilities. In the, in the same way, teachers in special education and now in New York and many other states, in order to receive your special education certification, you also have to be qualified in general education. And previously there was too little focus on curriculum and on content and more on methodology. Um, for teachers of students with disabilities. So it does make it more rigorous for students entering the system and once you get into really complicated places like bilingual on top of exactly. these other two things or <laughs> high school algebra or high school physics or even career education, the requirements become very burdensome and when you're up to 50, 60, 70 hours of, you know, programming, um, we hope we're able to re attract and recruit the people that we need because <clears throat> we need very highly qualified individuals. And in some countries, teaching is viewed as a much 
higher level profession and a much more right. respected. Um, and it tracks the top echelon. And in the United States, especially with the much greater options for women, it's the good news and the bad news over the last 30 years, it's not that you can only be a nurse or a teacher. Right. Now the sky is the limit, essentially, about what you want to do and where you want to go. So it is a problem, but um, the good news is there is a much greater understanding of the students you're going to work with and the breadth of the knowledge that you need to have. And nobody enters the school system prepared for the rest of their life to do what they need to do. Every school needs to be sure. providing supervision, professional development, and helping teachers obtain and retain the skills that they need. And it would be wonderful if we respected and valued the profession more. I'd love to see it viewed as a wonderful profession, a fulfilling and exciting profession. Which it is. Which it is, exactly. Wow. In New York City, we have um, a highly specialized special education delivery system known as District 75. That's a little controversial. People ask, what's the future of District 75 and what role should it play going forward? What do you think? District 75 has a tremendous amount of experience and expertise in educating students with more severe disabilities and uh, less common disabilities like deafness or blindness, hearing impaired, visually impaired. So you don't want to lose that level of expertise. On the other hand, historically, there was much more focus in District 75 on segregating students, make, taking them out of the general education environment, at least out of the general education classroom. So I don't think anyone wants to lose the level of expertise of the professionals that work in District 75. I do think the goal is to see more interaction between their staff and the staff in the general education schools, both the staff and the students. So we're seeing that increasing, and we want to see on IEPs it be made clear whether students who need District 75, and a District 75 school, a lot of people don't understand this either, is the same level of restrictiveness as a private school. It, it, even though in some cases you're supposed to be served under New York State law in public, over, if you can be, over private, it's not less restrictive to be in a public school segregated building. That's not the same as District 75 programs that exist in some cases very successfully in general education buildings. And some of those uh, principles are very welcoming, and you see real efforts at integration, and others may be less welcoming. But it, it's, from my perspective, especially for very young children, it's hard for me to imagine that there isn't only a very small population of very young children who couldn't be at least in a building with their non-disabled peers, and couldn't be spending part of the day integrating with their non-disabled peers. Either. Even if it's only in the lunchroom and in the gym and in some recreational uh, activities. So um, I think District 75 is a very, very valuable resource. I think some of its segregated programs, a few of them probably are appropriate and need to remain segregated to a large extent, especially some of the programs that serve students with such severe physical disabilities that being in a building even with a lot of children is just not going to work. But I think that we need to continue the level of integration of both the staff and the students. Let 
we chatted on the phone. We talked a little bit about District 75 inclusion, mm -hmm. and you saw that as a possible model going forward. I, I think that level of support for in t taking students with severe disabilities and integrating them for part of the day. That's whole part of the reform is this more flexibility in program. In New York City, and in fact in, in New York State, but especially in New York City, you're more likely to see students either fully integrated at least 80% of the day in general education classroom or almost fully excluded. And um, there's no reason for that. Students can easily have IEPs that have, if the student has a special difficulty in mathematics, they can be in a special class in mathematics if they really can't manage in a general ed classroom where the expectations are much higher and the pace is moving much faster so that they can't get the individualized instruction that they need. So I think that's an important thing for people to be looking at and thinking about is how we can have more flexibility and use the expertise of, as I talked about before, related service providers who may be consulting and that, and that kind of thing. Um, one of my concerns is this tendency now to look at one-to-one -one paraprofessionals of students placed in integrated environments. And people are not that aware of the research which is showing there are real negative consequences of this level of both isolation often of the student, of bullying because the student is looked at as different. And a very big issue is the lack of access to the most highly skilled instructor for students who tend to be the most disabled. So unfortunately, we see when a student gets an individualized para, the teacher kind of gets a mindset that says, thank goodness someone is, is taking care of that student and right. isn't paying sufficient attention. So how we can look at more flexible programming of paraprofessionals, maybe assigning them to the school versus the student, where you're not driving so much constant oversight, even when in some cases we have more adults in the room than students. And that's where you have to look at your whole program and where people writing the IEPs have to be more aware of who else is in that room, where could they share a paraprofessional, where does it only need to be when they're in the auditorium or when they're in the cafeteria, what are the reasons that this child, again, it goes back to looking at the goals. What's the least restrictive, least intensive way these goals can be met? Intensity, from my perspective, is a combination of the staffing ratio and the amount of time per day. So there's nothing more intensive. And in some ways you can say it's not the federal definition of restrictive, but it's restrictive for the child who has an all-day one-to-one paraprofessional. So we're trying to move towards what may be called an IEP-assigned paraprofessional, thinking much more about does this need to be full-time, does it need to be one-to-one, -one, or is it unnecessary? Because we should be relying on programmatic paraprofessionals, too. Right. Um, let's talk for a moment about students with intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. What would the state have to do to raise their academic performance? Well, students with intellectual disabilities sit on a very broad range of capabilities, and that's part of the problem. I think that the state's new requirements around alternate assessment and about this, this new credential, the, mm -hmm. the SAC, um, looks at how are we preparing focuses much more on how are we preparing these students for when they leave school because as we spoke about 
Entitlement ends when you either get a diploma or you turn 21. There may be other services out there for adults, but they're not an entitlement. And so this all comes down to good transition planning, which should start as early as possible. And where the long-term adult outcome goals, we look at the outcomes and the long-term goals and say, where do I, and the student should be involved in this decision-making whenever possible, and many students with intellectual disabilities are perfectly capable of stating their desires, wants, and needs, much more so than I think we take advantage of, and certainly their parents, to start early in saying, okay, this is my vision. This is where I want to be when I exit the school system. And students with intellectual disabilities are much more likely to stay until they're 21. Sure. And they should. They should be taking advantage of it. So now we see this credential, which is much more individualized than the CDOS, which is the Career Development Occupational Studies credential for kids who take the regular assessments, because that's assuming a level of intellectual capacity that students would have if they're taking the regular assessment. And that, too, is driven by these career plans that uh, are very well developed and that cover a whole number of areas preparing a student for employment. The, the students who have intellectual disabilities need to be prepared both for employment and for independent living, much more so than a student who wouldn't need, for example, to be considering, can I live on my own or not? What kind of level of supports do I need as an adult? So to me, parents and students need to be paying tremendous amount of attention to transition planning and they need to be holding schools accountable for meeting this trajectory towards their long-term adult goals. So if you see a goal, this is the child that will have a student, will be an adult, will have a uh, job in an integrated environment, a competitive job, then you have to kind of work backwards and say, okay, what skills do they have now? What experiences right. do they have now? Right. There has to be much more focus on practical experience uh, than everyone is, in some cases, are getting now. It can't all be in a school building that you think you can get the exposure to all the things that you need. So there have to be a lot more collaborations, including collaborations with access, to get students some level of experience in more integrated and more external environments. So I'm glad you mentioned these two new credentials because everybody is trying to get up to speed on them. One is the CDOS, as you mentioned, and the other is known as the SACC. Um, since they're credentials, they're not a part of the continuum. They don't appear on the IEP. But I do understand what you're saying about the importance of a good transition plan. So the question would be, what is the intersection of transition planning and tracking those components of CDOS and the SACC? Well. I don't think it's fair to say a diploma isn't part of a continuum, but your IEP and your transition plan should make it very clear whether your long-term outcome is to have a diploma or not. And the new, there are relatively new requirements now around CDOS which are requiring for IEP teams, committees on special education, to talk to parents and students and to review where they are in that process. So. It should be very clear from a student's IEP of transition age, mm -hmm. whether they're aiming for a regular diploma with a CDOS, whether they're right. aiming for a CDOS and not a regular diploma, or whether they're aiming for the, the SACC. So these things should 
absolutely be able to be determined by looking at an older student's IEP because that's where you have to be tracking. For example, to get a CDOS, you need so many hours of right. career and technical mm -hmm. education. So it should be clear in your uh, instructional goals around your transition plan, what courses are you going to be taking in the year ahead to begin to meet these criteria. How are you going to get the hours that you require of work experience? Right. Where is that going to happen and how is that going to happen? So that should be clear on an IEP. I'm actually, you know, really curious to see the first IEP that is that definitive and that explanatory because you can see diploma objectives, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all the components are laid out in a way that the parent can see and track. And I think that's a work in progress because the CDOS is a relatively new credential. But I'm going to be following that because it's very interesting. Well, you don't have to have, I think, their entire course outline there. But the parent should have access to the sure. entire course outline. There should be, remember, you have to get these report cards, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> usually four times a year, which both talk about your annual goals and the progress that you're making, but also lay out how are you doing in your instructional program. So. I'm not trying to give the impression that you're going to see every single course right. that the child is taking, but in general you should be able to tell that they're going to be taking career and technical education courses or they're going to be working at a job site. These things should be in the present levels of performance and in the transition goals and in the transition service summary because remember you have to both lay out goals and the services that are going to be provided and that's where it should be. So parents do have to get educated and they do have to understand what they need to be asking for at these meetings. So I only have time for one more question, and it's a big one. <laughs> what single initiative would do the most to successfully integrate students with disabilities with their typically developing peers? Well, I, I think it's, it's a combination of professional development and flexibility and programming. Uh, I think that you have to continue to work on the skills of general education and special education teachers. You have to help administrators, principals especially, take on that responsibility seriously and pay attention. It can't be that you just delegate to somebody else and say, I'll find out later what, whether it worked or it didn't work. They have to be in the classrooms observing giving teachers feedback or have a system of mentoring or those kinds of things in place. And they have to be looking at more flexible programming. So instead of the five paras assigned to five students, two paras assigned to the school that are flexible and can be put in a cafeteria when that's necessary and can be moved here and there depending on what's happening with an individual child. Uh, you can have a single incident drive this kind of level of intense programming, it really is unnecessary. On the other hand, you want to have the, if that's the only way you can get the person in the building, that's what's going to happen. So we need to look at budgeting issues, but professional development and flexibility to me are, the need for that is never going to end. Never. <laughs> Becky, thank you so much. You're I very really welcome. appreciate it. Thank pleasure. you.